It would be difficult to find something more opposite to a tech startup than a bank. But Tom Blomfield, CEO of Monzo, a startup mobile-only bank, wants to use that to his advantage. Because where competitors have largely been positioning themselves as innovative banks, focusing on the cost savings afforded without the overheads of branches and highlighting their competitive deals, Monzo instead has focused more on the wider possibilities offered by building a bank from the ground up in the 21st century, one with an inspiring user experience and with efficiency at front of mind. We heard from Tom himself, who was in conversation with Lindsay Barber, City AM's tech editor. Enjoy. Tom, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, we are very excited to hear uh, about what's going on with Monzo. Um, you just hit the, uh, is it 100,000 users? That's right, yeah, uh, just last week. Which is very exciting. Um, nearly the one million mark of, of money going through Monzo as well. Is that oh, we've a hundred million. Sorry, hundred million. <laughs> so, um, so um, yeah, tell us. That's a great start to the, to the year. Um, yeah, it's been it's been brilliant. Um, what's what's the plan for the rest of the year? What's going on with you guys? So, um, just stepping back a second, like we I remember when we planned this prepaid thing. We were, we were trying to do it to test out the product with a few, like a handful of users. And we thought we'd maybe get four or 5,000 cardholders at, at most. So it's just, we're just delighted to get to 100,000. It's absolutely brilliant. <laughs> the next step for us is obviously the bank. Yep. Um, so we got our license in the summer of last year. And we're just finalizing getting, the, getting that fully launched, if you will. So the, the last few, so dotting the, the I's and crossing the T's. We'll be launching the current account uh, in the next few months, so we're, we're testing it internally with a handful of staff at the moment, okay. coming soon. And what's the feedback so far been uh, from internally? Obviously, everyone's kind of like, Oh, it's, uh, it's <laughs> early. It's early. So just as with the prepaid card, um, we iterated very quickly, and so the first few sort of weeks and months, there were, you know, there were clearly teething problems, um, but I think what a real strength of, of Monzo's is the ability to iterate just really, really quickly. So... You know, the first month or two with the prepaid card, a bunch of bucks. Um, but by about sort of February or March of last year, it was working really well. And we really knew the difference was, was palpable because people stopped saying, hey, why is my card not working? And started saying, can I have a second card or a third card for my, my husband, my wife, or my friends? Um, so we're going through that with the, with the current account right now, just making sure that we don't, we don't just do you know, direct debits and standing orders the same way everyone else does them, but, but doing it the sort of Monzo way, so a way that's delightful and gives you visibility and control over all of your money. Absolutely. Um, so if I was, uh, like me, the average Joe, with a Monzo card, um, obviously uh, keeping up with what's going on and going, oh, yes, can't wait for this current account to happen, um, when would I be able to accept it? So we'll do, as, as before, a stage rollout. So we tend not to do big bang launches because they go bang <laughs> and stuff, you know, stuff doesn't work as, as you'd expect. And so we've been much more successful with kind of stage rollouts. So, you know, we, we're trialing a handful of accounts internally right now. That'll go to sort of a few thousand early users, hopefully in the next couple of months. Mm-hmm. And then um, the, you know, the mass of users over probably three, four, five months out. So by the summer, we should have been fully transitioned onto the, onto the current account. New, new users will be able to sign up straight into the current account oh, um, by the summertime. It'll be a, it'll be a phased process. Um, and will you still offer the, the kind of prepaid card as well at the same time as offering the current account? Will you kind of shift towards just the current account? That's a good question. Um, we will shift just towards the current account, but we would like to um, make it as easy to sign up for a current account as it was for a prepaid card. So I don't think consumers really should have to care whether it's a prepaid card or a debit card or a credit card or whatever. 
These are sort of words that banks invented. You know, it's an app. You can get started really fast. You can put some money on it. You can spend that money. Does it really matter if it's a prepaid card or a current account? Like, arguably not. So that's the kind of experience we're trying to, trying to get to. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. People don't really care about these things, do they? Kind of no, bankers just... have just taught, like, trained us to think about these things. And they're like, they're not real things. They're made up. <laughs> You're not going to rebrand the current account as something, I don't know. I kind you... of want to do that, actually. <laughs> no, I do. Because what we're... I don't know, this is probably... I think what we're trying to do is, is something different. We're not just trying to do a current account that does all the same things as the bank, like a bit cheaper, right? I think we're trying to solve a broader category of problems, or eventually. So it should be the current account that tells you when you've got to tap out on TFL or accumulates your nectar points automatically or switches your gas and electricity automatically to save you money. And that's, that, to me, doesn't feel like a current account from HSBC or RBS. It's sort of... It's almost like the shift from you know, the, the old Nokia feature phones to the smartphone. And I think we need a, a new phrase. I think smart bank is, is, I don't know, kind of a bit lame, but if someone should, has a better idea. You should do some sort of competition. Yeah, to, like name the it. thing. I don't know what the thing is yet, but it's, if we get it right, it will feel like a different kind of service, I think. Um, and in terms of um, funding uh, from VCs or, or you know, elsewhere, kind yep. of, um, you know, not individuals, um, how are you finding that at the moment? There was um, a report saying that fintech funding had gone down, uh, but also the challenger banks were one of the, the biggest um, kind of funded last year. Um, so mm. it's a bit of an interesting time to be doing it, particularly with Brexit. It is, yeah. So we, we're just wrapping up our fundraising now um, and you know, sign term sheets, and we'll be, be announcing that at the same time as crowdfunding. It has been different, and I think... Um, the investment climate around the world has, has changed in the last 12 months compared to two years ago. I think there's a real focus on, um, this sounds strange, but like business fundamentals. Um, uh, whereas I think there was a bit of exuberance probably two or three years ago with every, Uber kind of used uh, basically infinite cheap capital as a weapon. And everyone sort of looked at that and went, oh, that, that must be the way the world works now. Let's assume that capital is, is endless and cheap. Yeah, yeah, and just keep growing. And that, uh, there's been a backpedaling from that, I think. So I think investors are really focusing down on you know, the business model and unit economics. And, and so a bunch of startups have had to shift from a growth model to a you know, how are we going to make money model. Um, that said, there is a ton of money going to challenger banks. Um, I think we are probably the least capital intensive of the new challengers. Others have a, a much, much more of a balance sheet driven model. You know, they need to, you saw Atoms raising another 100 million on top of the 100 odd it's already raised. Mortgage lending is a capital intensive business. Uh, that's not our model. So we are much, much lighter. Um, we're more about the sort of transaction processing, user identity, and, and transaction data. That's kind of core to our, our model. Um, yes, because you said that, um, I think at the time you got your banking license, that you were you know, solely focused on the current account. Mm. It's going to be a range of products. Um, is that still the kind of plan, or would you consider you know, potentially savings? Because obviously that's a you know, sensible next step after you know, what we call a current Yeah, account. so this goes back to the kind of solving a broader range of problems yeah. point, I guess. So we're not aiming to build a full-service bank. Mm -hmm. So we're not going to offer Monzo mortgages or Monzo credit cards, for example, but... Clearly, as individuals, we have a range of financial needs. And so what we're trying to do with Monzo is be the financial hub. So you want to send money abroad, use TransferWise, like still integrated in, into the Monzo app, but you know, use these third parties via kind of APIs 
in a seamless way, but, but not on our balance sheet. Mm-hmm. So, you know, thinking longer term, you've been paying rent for three or four years and saving up, we can help you take your transaction data and your verified identity to go and get a mortgage. And maybe it's HSBC or maybe it's Charter Court, um, a new bank that, that provides you the best mortgage. So it's kind of this marketplace idea. So yes, in time, you should be able to access every kind of product from within the Monzo app, mm-hmm. but not necessarily from the Monzo balance sheet. So much more of a kind of marketplace or a portal. Um, that kind of feeds into my next question, which um, uh, obviously a lot more these days is, you know, fintech startups are as, rather than being disruptors to banks, are being partners to banks. Mm. Um, so for you guys, how do you see that relationship working? Is that something you would look at? Yes, and it depends which banks. So uh, I think the finance sort of retail finance ecosystem is really interesting. Someone said, I've got the, I'm going to get the quote totally wrong, but every industry is either going through a wave of disaggregation or re-aggregation. Mm-hmm. And what we've seen in the last 10 years is disaggregation, clearly. You know, funding circle and Zopa and TransferWise and all of these single-purpose providers doing one thing really, really well. Mm-hmm. I think we're going to go through re-aggregation, albeit a looser re-aggregation around kind of APIs and marketplaces. Um, so in that sense, we will be kind of partnering or cooperating with a bunch of banks offering these products. Um, similarly with PSD2 coming along, it's kind of requires each bank to open up APIs and that you almost force each product to stand on its t- own two feet, mm-hmm. which we can then reintegrate around an API as sort of becoming a platform, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, so that like disaggregation and re-aggregation around APIs is sort of the way we see ourselves partnering. And as a, as a financial services provider, you, I think you have a kind of a strategic question and I think a lot of big banks are kind of fudging this question, where you either you decide you're going to be a hyper-efficient balance sheet lender, you don't really focus on brand or customer relationship that much, you're just like super, super efficient at writing mortgages. And you know, Atom is sort of, sort of there, but definitely you know, Paragon, Oak North, Charter, Marshaven, all of these banks that have launched in the last year that no one's ever heard of, <laughs> because they, they just don't spend money on, on brand marketing. They spend money giving you the best rates on your savings accounts and the, and the cheapest mortgages. And so if you look at the top of the best buy tables, it's always these banks you've never heard of. Mm-hmm. That's, that's great, actually. It's really good for the customer to have that competition, that choice. So on one hand, you either be a super, super efficient kind of balance sheet uh, savings and loan company, or the other end of the spectrum is you be a customer interface, a trusted brand, uh, really double down on design and user experience and giving one-click kind of interfaces. And the, those two partner really, really well. Mm-hmm. The problem is for most big banks, they're stuck somewhere in the middle. They don't do either. They're not efficient enough to compete on price, and their user interface is sucky, so no one's going to choose to use them. So they're kind of caught in the middle of this strategic kind of um, bifurcation, I guess. Do you think, uh, and what do you think we'll see then from, from the banks, uh, kind of, you know, short term or long term? Like, will they kind of go one way or the other, do you think? And I think they'll do both. Do so I think they'll need to make each product stand on its own two feet. So they'll have to dramatically cut operating costs, get rid of branches, automate, like invest in technology to make the, the servicing of the product much, much, much more efficient than it is today so that they can compete on price in a much more transparent marketplace. I think they're also you know, doubling down on building better user interfaces. Um, the problem is they have to... To build the best marketplace, you can't just sell your own wares. You have to sell other people's wares to be competitive. And that's the strategic problem banks are going through. They're like, great, I've got this customer interface, but I, I only want to sell my mortgage. I don't want to offer someone else's mortgage. Why would I do that? Mm-hmm. And as a customer, you're thinking, like, why would I 
why would I want to get locked in with a, an RBS or an HSBC when I can use something like a Monzo or whatever, some other um, interface that gives me choice and, and price competitiveness. You mentioned there um, PSD2, uh, open banking, uh, yeah. APIs. Um, kind of jargony for some people that may not quite understand it. Um, but it's big and it's how fundamental is it to you guys uh, and do you think for the fintech industry more broadly, is it a kind of a big bang moment where it suddenly opened up? I think um, I think p- the potential of PSD2 is enormous. So the, the sort of in a nutshell, PSD2 is this piece of European uh, regulation which means that any payment account provider, i.e. a bank account or a bank, has to open up the data inside it so that a customer can take that data and share it with third parties with opt-in permissions. So you could go to Money Supermarket and say, scan my account where I can be saving money, or uh, you could have a single dashboard that shows all of your, you know, your pensions part and your mortgage and your ISIS all in one place, which is, which is amazing for the consumer. And it's, it has the potential to revolutionize retail financial services, but the reality is going to be a bit of a train wreck, I think. Uh, the next year or two or three will be incredibly rocky. Mm-hmm. Um, I just don't think anyone is ready really to launch these things yet. I think the banks will really struggle to get them working. Mm-hmm. I think they will be clunky and slow and very difficult to use and not give the kinds of data you'd want in the, in the ways you'd expect. And it will take five years to get them right. But in five years, it might be really cool. So <laughs> we're not, we're kind of, if it happens miraculously to work, we'll absolutely jump on that bandwagon, but we're not, we're not betting the farm on it. It's just not, I don't think it's going to be ready yet. Absolutely. Um, and with the, with the banks, I mean, do you think it, you know, you kind of covered it there a little bit, but are they, do you get the sense that they're potentially a little bit reluctant to do this because for them it's, it's obviously a big change? I've heard one board member of a big bank say that they'd open up APIs over their dead body. <laughs> this was a few years ago, but it's like they see this as their like the, the customer transaction data is like theirs, and they don't want to let anyone else get hold of it. And then we're forced to by law now. They're saying, and frankly, they're not making very much use of it. Really, they're sitting on it in silos. But even within the bank, the, the sort of data in the product, you know, the mortgage product isn't shared with the credit card product. It's really, really siloed. And so, cracking it open will create value for customers. But I think banks are very scared about losing the customer relationship. I think this concept of owning the customer, which just seems just horrific, actually. I think you should be serving the customer, and if you do that loyally and, and fairly, then maybe the, the customer will grace you with their, with, their, um, with their customer, with their business. You don't own the customer. So with challenger banks, uh, I mean, obviously, they've come along, uh, and they are challenging the big banks, the established banks. Uh, there are several of you. Um, yeah. There are, you know, how what, they kind of seemed like they all came along at once. Mm. Um, everyone's yeah. in kind of different stages, but yep. they're all still quite early. Yep. Um, how do you see competition kind of going forward uh, with them? And do you see more challenger banks joining uh, that? Yeah. Uh, or is it potentially a little bit too late? No, I think it's definitely not too late. And there, there are probably 15 or 16 challenger banks. Mm-hmm. And people always talk about the four that are kind of, if we think about that spectrum before, you know, the people who are doing the kind of big brand, like customer interface stuff versus the very lightly branded, really efficient balance sheet. 
people talk about the fall with the brand, naturally, right? We do a ton of marketing. But the, the real hidden success story is the 10 or 12 or so that, you know, the Paragons and Mars Havens and Oak North sort of successfully launched and actually raised pretty big balance sheets already. They're just sort of quietly plugging away and doing what they do really well. I think the four who are making a lot of noise, uh, that'll be really interesting. And I think we've had a very different approach, which is to be super transparent, to launch products early and to get users involved. And that's worked incredibly well for us. So it's, it's almost like, and, and some of the others haven't, right? They've, they've are, not... you, are you talking about yourself within those four? Yes, for yeah. sure. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So uh, <laughs> Starling, Atom, Tandem, and Monzo would be the four in the UK with the sort of going after broadly the same market. But Maybe not, right? You can argue about that. But certainly talking about things like artificial intelligence banking and really kind of the customer interface. Um, and it's been like a kind of a game of poker so far with two or three parties like, hold, like holding their cards quite close to their chest. We've played with an open hand. We've just put our cards on the table and gone, that's our hand. That's what we're doing, guys. And the others have sort of like been playing a very closed hand. And I think 2017 will be the, the time when you've got to lay your cards on the table. And we'll find out who's been bluffing. <laughs> so we'll see. You know, it's like there's a lot of there's been a lot of talk, but not a lot of product from some of these some of these players. So I think 2017 is is the time we'll actually see what everyone's been building. I think it'll be hugely exciting for the customer. Yeah. So by the end of 2017, where do you see uh, where do you see that landscape? Who, who's going to have done what and how? How do you see that panning out between them? Impossible to say. Um, I just haven't seen the products that, that, um, that a few of these banks are, are, have been building. You know, they've just played their cards very close to their chest, and, and we'll see. They might have pocket aces, or they might have <laughs> a busted flush, you know. We'll see. We'll see. Uh, I think our approach has always just been super, super open, transparent, iterative, and it's worked just incredibly well for us. So we are growing like crazy. We, we've hit 100,000 customers. We're growing 8 or 9% week on week. In the last couple, like last week in particular, with basic zero marketing spend, mm-hmm. and so that word of mouth kind of thing is starting to work really well. Mm-hmm. Um, long may it continue. That's um, a good point. You know, the, the word of mouth um, obviously has worked really well. Um, do you see that um, hitting a ceiling at all, um, and that you may have to mm. kind of broaden that? Uh, you know, so to try and get those customers that will probably be open to it that wouldn't necessarily in that world of knowing someone who's uh, you know, an early adopter? That's a, an interesting question. We've, I think we've moved... I don't know if we've moved yet between sort of the early adopter and early mainstream or not. Certainly, uh, the demographic of our customer base has changed dramatically. So the first five or 10,000 were uh, male, 31, lived in Shoreditch, had an iPhone, <laughs> a silly beard, and worked in technology. Like, then me, basically. You know, they read TechCrunch. Um, it was really surprising how narrow the demographic of the first 5,000-ish, 10,000-ish users were. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, 92, 93% were male of our early users. More recently, as we hit sort of 70, 80, 100,000 customers, it's, it's much more evenly gender balanced. It's 60% outside London. iOS and Android are more evenly split. So I think, uh, you know, arguably we have got into that early mainstream. Mm-hmm. And so this word of mouth thing is something we are doubling down on and really trying to build network effects into the product. Mm-hmm. So you'll see, you know, share your contact list so you can see who else is on Monzo. You can send the money, you can request money from them, you can uh, split bills, you can have joint savings pots, all these kind of things that um, make it, make the user want to bring their friends because it makes the product better for them, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. So 
the first bank with real network effects, perhaps. Adding a bit of that social network kind for of sure. in there. For sure. It's the way all the social networks grew uh, exponentially for free. Um, it's how you know, Skype grew. Mm-hmm. You, Skype gets more valuable the more people you know who are using it, because you can call people. So <laughs> that's not ever been true with a bank account, really. It's been a very private thing. Yeah. So actually, I think there are quite strong network effects if you, if you build the product in that way. It's interesting as well, because conventional thinking, uh, one might assume that, you know, why would you want to do that thing, that, that sort of thing, with your finances? Yep. Um, and it's interesting that people do. <laughs> It is. And it's not everything, right? It's not like I'm sharing all my transaction history or my balance with, <laughs> yeah, my with the world. You're not like <laughs> tweeting necessarily, although some people do. It's more like those interactions. You know, it's that I bought lunch for a colleague and he or she needs to pay me back. Or like eight of us are going on a, a ski trip or something. Or we're, you know, I have a, I'm in a, in a house share and I need to split the gas bill six ways. So it's those kind of interactions that are kind of a bit painful now. And you've seen apps that do bits and so like Tilt or, or whatever, doing kind of bill spitting, mm-hmm. but they become much more powerful if they're inside your bank account. Mm-hmm. So we really see sort of, we see one user then blossom into 10 users around that person. And we see that a lot sort of pockets. So we introduced it to a bunch of tech companies. So we went to, you know, went to Stripe, we went to TransferWise and gave out a handful of cards. And you go back a month later, the whole of TransferWise is using Monzo card. Uh, that's just happened over and over again, these kind of communities of people. It's a really encouraging sign for us. You should definitely do some sort of visualisation of that. Yeah, <laughs> great. Yeah. Um, and um, more broadly, um, kind of, uh, unfortunately, it's one of those subjects that kind of comes up a lot, Brexit. Um, there's been varying uh, responses uh, from you know, the fintech world to... Um, Leaving Europe. Um, yep. For you guys, what kind of um, impact might that have, if any? So, there are three things, I think. So, long term, who knows what the impact is? It may very well be hugely positive for the country. I can't tell in 10 years' time. Maybe we'll be super, super glad. No one can. So, <laughs> no one can tell what The three things that it hurts, like today and for the next couple of years mm-hmm. one is uh, investment. Mm-hmm. It has definitely slowed down appetite from especially Europe and the US. China bizarrely seems to see it as a good thing actually. Mm. They see an independent Britain as perhaps stronger even and are more willing to invest. But in that, like capital inflows I think is, is, have been damaged. Second is um, attracting, retaining the best talent. And sure you can talk about making the visa process easier but the reality is out of 81 staff we've got something like 20 odd from continental Europe who came in without having to get a visa. One or two, we've just started to do our first visas. It's like 10 times harder to get a visa than just, just have someone from the EU mm-hmm. uh, walk over the border, frankly, and join. And even more than that, it's like emotional. A bunch of our staff are European nationals and have sort of, the last two, three, four months have, have sort of felt like, I thought this place was my home. You know, can I really make a life here? I've got, maybe you're married, you've got young kids. Like, is this the kind of environment that... Am I going to be welcome here in five years' time? Should I be thinking about moving back home? So that's like much harder to quantify, mm-hmm. but it's a real sort of feeling and a, a conversation I've had with many of our staff, which mm-hmm. is, you know, which which reassure them like we hugely value you, and it's sort of like, but does does the rest of the population really value us? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's tricky. The third thing is passporting, mm-hmm. and that's a, a a hard subject. I think 
on, the, on balance, probably passporting will go away. And that's the, passporting is a bank's ability with a national license to operate across Europe. So we have this sort of equivalence procedure. I think automatic passporting will just go away for, for UK banks, sadly. I might be wrong on that. Mm-hmm. If it goes away, you know, it's not fatal. We will have to go and get a second license in probably Ireland and open an office there and have some of our staff there. And it's, that's just... It just seems bad for our economy that we're, all of our fintechs and all of our banks are going to have to move a bunch of their staff to another country. Mm-hmm. It just seems something that we could have avoided. But um, there we are. Um, and have you, uh, kind of, with passporting, are you, you know, are you just at the stage of watching and waiting, or are you kind of looking more actively at what you can do? Um, so, we will start. So passporting has not gone away yet, and actually I don't think it's going to go, go away for two or three years. I think this whole Brexit thing is going to take a long time. <laughs> we'll still be having this debate in three years' time. Um, so probably what we'll do is passport into a bunch of European countries just under the current regime. Mm-hmm. Nothing has changed yet. And then in time, as we see how the, the, the sands shift, I guess, we will open a, a... Very likely we'll open a second office, but not for a year or two. Um, mm. What else um, do you think uh, kind of, you know... We're still early in the year. What, what do you think for the year ahead uh, are going to be interesting trends to look out for from fintechs? Mm, that's an interesting question. So um, I think I've got a number of friends who started sort of property technology startups. So uh, Habito, um, my previous co-founder Matt, has started Nested. So um, these sites that basically help you either get a mortgage or sell your house, or sort of around that house buying process. So uh, I don't know if it's got a, a, a moniker yet. Prop tech. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> There's also reg tech. So selling KYC, uh, provide, basically the provision of KYC services to the big banks. Yeah. And you know, money laundering and counter-terrorist funding, all that stuff. That is a, it's just a lot of money in it because the banks are employing thousands of people to do it right now and software could do it much better. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you've got the equally unlovely insure tech, uh, that's been that's, that was kind of 2016 on the hype cycle, I think. Mm. Insurance stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's like Cover that are doing quite well. Mm. Brolly that's pretty early. Just a bunch of different ways to kind of purchase and manage insurance for for someone who lives on a smartphone, basically. Um, yeah, those are the things I see. I mean, clearly, then you've got in in Asia, you've got WeChat and um, and Financial, which is just absolutely amazing. It's insane. A, it's, it is insane. It's yeah. on a different level. Just the speed and scale of their growth yeah. is breathtaking. Uh, we are dabbling around the edges in Europe at the moment. You wouldn't think of going to China to take them on. It's just so different. You know, it's, I'm a huge admirer of what, what's going on over there. I think there are massive differences to, to Western Europe and the US. Would you be concerned about some some of that coming over here because that would seem more likely I don't know I, I think it is just very different and we have a pretty penetration of financial services in the west is ultra high like everyone already has a bank account and it's like they're kind of clunky and you get hit with fees but everyone has a bank account already basically and the regulatory environment is relatively robust here mm-hmm. in China you know you've got a new middle class like getting access to, or demanding things like access to credit or investment products for the first time ever. And, you know, they've all got smartphones and typically in, in the past we've never even had a bank account. And so it's like this huge tidal wave of, 
of tech-enabled consumers demanding stuff mm -hmm. and a regulatory environment that's very different to the West. And so those two things just enable hyper-growth, basically. Mm -hmm. The factors in the West are just different. So, yeah, I'm not sure it translates directly. Um, and what about Europe? Um, obviously, you know, UK market is, uh, you know, home market. Would mm. you consider expanding further into Europe? For sure, yeah. Um, for sure. I think we, we would love to, but it's important not to underestimate the cultural differences in every country. Mm. So, you know, the usage of cash in Germany is staggeringly high still. And actually, they're sort of, um, they're hyper-vigilant about uh, in sort of data privacy in a way that even surpasses the UK. Um, other European countries, they have payment on delivery. So you order off a, a website and you pay the postman when he, when he delivers it to you. It's like these cultural kind of norms are just very different. Yeah. Uh, so I think we just need to be aware of that before kind of steamrolling in with like, this you is... You can't just go, hey, Europe, we're here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think N26 in Germany are doing a really good job. But even, I think they're also finding this like cultural difference surprising actually from, you know, from, from Germany into France and Spain and uh, you know, a bunch of countries. They're just very different. Um, very last question. Um, AI. Um, obviously, there's uh, mm. a lot of chatter around it. Um, a lot of, um, you know, it gets quite technical in the sense of, you know, this is an algorithm doing this, but what's the, you know, what, what's yeah. AI doing in this? Um, but in financial services, there's a lot of talk about it. Um, you, what's, you know, what's your views on that? Are you guys kind of looking at that at all? Yeah, so the equivalent in 2016 was blockchain. Uh, and that was a big pile of junk, basically. It was massively overhyped. I, I just, it was a, a solution in search of a problem. Mm -hmm. um, for me, machine learning and AI is the real deal, actually. Well, I need to nuance that a little bit. I think a lot of the advances right now are basically a, like a rules engine, like software, that's if, if this, then that kind of software. Like, that is not AI. That's, that's how computer code works <laughs> and like you're discovering that computers are really good at like running software to, to automate stuff like hurrah <laughs> but but even beyond that actually like sort of um the various kind of machine learning disciplines are surprise like they are yielding surprising um outcomes even even today so we're using it for fraud detection okay. um and you know we published a blog post last week where we got hit with a bunch of fraud over last summer and we were losing a you know a substantial amount of money, we implemented a rules engine very quickly, and that got rid of 80% of our fraud. That's, that's a simple rules engine, a human code, right? You, you set down a bunch of patterns that you look for. Mm -hmm. To get the last 20%, then we put machine learning in. We used Google's TensorFlow library, um, and that brought our fraud exposure. So we, we got the first 80% of the, the benefit from a rules engine. The next 19.9% we got from a, a, a machine learning algorithm, wow. basically. And our fraud is almost at zero now. Um, so I think that's a really good illustration of how machine learning actually can have impact today. I think credit underwriting is another really, really ripe area for disruption in, from, from machine learning and sort of data. Mm -hmm. yeah, it'd be exciting few years, I think. It's impressive result. Thank you. <laughs> um, thank you so much for joining me. You're very welcome.